So Tom Moran here from Thomas Big Spiders. This is going to be something incredibly different for me. For the past year or so, I've been giving thought to the idea of doing a podcast. My brother is very much into them and asked me if I ever thought about it. And to be quite frank, a lot of the videos, they start off with me doing the voiceover part, and then I try to fill in and fit in some of the images and footage that I catch to make a video out of them, and it's very, very time-consuming, and sometimes I end up cutting a lot of what I would like to say because I don't want it to go over and be this long, boring thing of me talking. The only issue I've had with the videos is a lot of times I have a lot to say, and anybody that's read my blog, Tom's Big Spiders, knows that I like to explain things as much as possible. I think part of that comes from my teaching background, where I'm, where in, if I'm teaching a lesson, I have all the time in the world to get it done. If I don't finish in a certain channel, I can carry it over to the next channel. But with a video, you've kind of got one pop, even with the editing and whatnot. It has to flow. It has to have you know the images to go with it. It can be very long and drawn out. So what I want to do is try something a little bit different, which I think will kind of open me up as far as being able to talk a little more about subjects. And hopefully, if this is something that people seem to appreciate, what I will do is look to do some interviews and things of that nature in the future. Because when I do interviews for my blog, normally what I do is send the folks text questions um, in a Word document or Google Doc or something in those nature of that nature. I forget sometimes that not everybody enjoys writing, so it can be very tedious for people that don't like writing, and it can be a turnoff to people who might otherwise not mind doing a an interview the old-fashioned way, you know, one-to-one talking. So that said, what I'm going to do to start off is kind of cover a couple questions or comments that I had on my YouTube videos because I think that would be a neat way to start off. So the first thing I'd like to discuss, and mostly because this has come up a couple times lately, is feeding dead prey to tarantulas. And this one was kind of uh, spur- spurred by a comment I got on one of my M. Balfouri, an earlier M. Balfouri video, and it was one of my M. Balfouri that I kept in isolation they weren't kept in the communal setup and somebody asked you must give them live food you know that well my first thought was maybe there was something wrong with translation i wasn't sure where they were going with it so i responded no you don't most animals or slings will scavenge off dead prey in the wild and i explained that i've set up a communal with nine mbalfori in it and for the first several months i fed the slings dead crickets they ate great and they're all well over three inches after the year mark so everything's fine But then I got a response back in all caps, yes, but it's better when you feed them live food, okay, because they need it. Now, I can only think that this comes off of some type of miscommunication or something somebody read in which folks were discussing the fact that tarantulas do eat live prey. I've heard of people that kill everything ahead of time, even for adults, and I have been privy to discussions on forums, particularly arachnoids. I remember one in which somebody said they kill them all, and the big question was, why do you bother? Tarantulas have been around millions of years. They're natural killing machines. Anybody that's kept any of them know that these guys can hunt. They're fantastic, fantastically good hunters. And part of that's due to the fact that in the wild, they've got to be pretty accurate when they catch things because some of them just kind of have to sit and wait for things to walk by. So I think what happens is people, and I'm only assuming this individual was new to the hobby, hear something like this and immediately think, oh dear, you can't feed them dead prey. That's wrong. I'm guessing where that's coming from. I did have somebody else ask me recently, and I can't find the comment, 
or made a comment that it's not good to give them dead prey because they can get sick off of it. So maybe I should always, when I'm talking about dead prey, emphasize the fact that I'm talking about freshly killed. It's not something that's been sitting around and I went, oh, hey, here's a dead cricket. I'm going to toss this black rotten cricket in with them. I kill them when I'm feeding them. Again, it's not pleasant. I don't enjoy doing it. But for some specimens, they don't like the live prey or they tend to shy away from larger live prey. Dropping in something dead is perfectly fine. Now, back to the original comment on the M. Balfrey. The reason I found this one particularly kind of amusing is because this is one of the species that folks have actually witnessed the mothers feeding the young. They kill prey and lay it down on the ground and allow the young to feed from it. So of all the species you could have said this about, this is the one where it has been proven. It's, it's scientifically been observed that the mothers will kill prey and leave them for them. As a matter of fact, for a while, folks were saying that M. Balfouri could be pretty difficult to raise when they were slings, and it was because many people were doing the traditional pull the sack from the mother and try to raise the sack on their own without the mother's help. What we have since discovered is that the M. Balfouri mothers are fantastic parents and that the M. Balfouri, at least this species, does much, much better when kept with the mother. The mother will feed uh, feed them by killing prey, take care of them, and as I've already witnessed with my communal, the slings together seem to be much more active, lively, better eaters. So I'm assuming this is something to do with the fact that they're used to living with the mother and having the mother feed them. So of all the species to mention with this with about, this was probably not the best one because this is when we flat out know mom is a great mom and will feed them. Now, talking about other species, again, many folks find it preferable to feed dead prey to smaller slings because it can be very, very difficult to find small prey. And to give an example, when I first got my slings, I tried going to Petco. I had little tiny GBB, C, cyanopubicins, and uh, cyanopubicins, either way, and a Lazydora parahybana, or the salmon bird eater slings. And they were small, and I went to Petco, tried to get some crickets for them, and even the small crickets, my guys were afraid of them. And basically what I ended up having to do was buy roaches online and it was getting very expensive because I was spending a lot of money to ship a handful of little tiny, I believe they're red runner uh, pinheads to feed these guys. What I ended up learning was that if you take one of those small crickets and kill it and drop it in there, they will scavenge feed off of it. And in the wild, it is thought that the majority of tarantula slings will do scavenge feeding. They'll find dead prey, they'll find a dead bug, and they will feed off it. And that's, again, I don't know how much this has been actually witnessed in the wild, but you have to think this is something they've developed and that it does carry over to captivity because I've seen many of mine eating scavenge prey. It's the easiest thing in the world to do when you've got teeny tiny slings. You can take what they call a cricket drumstick, rip a leg off, cut it up, drop it in. And usually what I like to do is put it someplace where I know I'll be able to recognize where I put it in the morning. If it's moved, you can assume they ate because for some of the teeny tiny ones, you can't notice how much has been eaten off of it very well. So yes, tarantulas can eat dead prey as long as it's fresh and not rotten it's perfectly fine i think with adults it is good because they don't they don't need exercise like a dog or cat but i do think it's good to allow them to exercise their feeding responses and their hunting instincts by dropping in live prey so i'm not a huge fan of like tong feeding or giving them right off the tong i have a couple species that i've done it with 
in the past a Caribbean versicolor sling that was having a difficult time locating prey. But for the most part, I love to drop the prey in either in front of them or around them and watch them hunt. So yes, it's perfectly, it's a great thing to feed them live prey. But as far as dead prey is concerned, it's perfectly permissible to feed your slings or even some of your adults or some of your larger specimens if they're not eating live prey, dead prey. They're used to doing it. It's a good way to fatten them up quickly, especially those small slings that you might not have appropriately sized prey on hand for. And for some of them, I've actually had ones that seem to be rather timid and afraid of prey, even smaller prey items. And again, I go back to those original Balfrey that I kept. I had three of them, and unlike the ones that I kept in the communal environment, these guys were not good eaters. They were very shy, and I even once they hit around two inches, I was still having to drop in small crickets for them, even though other tarantulas that size, I was dropping in even large crickets and were hunting them with no problem. These guys seemed to be very skittish and afraid of prey, so sometimes it behooved me to drop in a larger cricket live right in front of them, let them grab it, eat it, and they did fine. It allowed them to put on some weight because these guys weren't the best eaters back then. So again, I get where it's coming from, but one of the reasons I started Tom's Big Spiders to begin with was when I first got into the hobby, there was so much misinformation out there and so much information being passed around as true. In fact, when in fact, a lot of what's passed around the hobby is opinion, and a lot of what you find online is not correct information. It's regurgitated. And I think what happens is people get into the hobby, they hear something, they misconstrue it, they pass it off, because I think everybody wants to feel important, everybody wants to feel like they know what they're doing, and people take it as gold, and that becomes a problem. And as far as I'm concerned with the feeding of them, it doesn't matter if the prey is live or dead. I would assume if you've got something that's taking live prey, feed it live prey. No need to play around with it. No need to kill anything. But for things that require the dead prey, don't think twice about it. Go ahead and drop it in. Next one coming up is a question that I get, oh gosh, three, four times a week probably. It's a question about humidity. And again, this falls back on the misinformation online. And one of the biggest issues I have with these online care sheets, besides the fact that a lot of them are just copied and pasted from other people, they're not people really talking about their own experience, which drives me nuts. But one of the things that is included in most of these is the quote-unquote ideal humidity. Now, this whole idea of ideal humidity is absolutely ridiculous. For example, I live in a state where we have the four seasons, and during the summer months in particular, the humidity can be up around 90% for prolonged periods of time. I live in an environment where the humidity is 90%. Now, is that my ideal humidity? Heck no. I can't stand humidity. It's disgusting. I can't stand heat and humidity. Can I tolerate it? Can I live in it? Absolutely. And there are other times a year where the humidity is very, very dry. My skin gets dry. It's just nasty. We all know that, especially wintertime where heaters are running, would that low humidity be my ideal? Probably not. Again, I don't like having dry skin. I don't like having to put lotion on all the time. Not trying to get personal here, but I think it's something a lot of people can relate to. So when you think about assigning an animal an ideal humidity, the whole concept becomes kind of ridiculous. I think tarantulas are very hardy creatures, and many of them come from areas where they have adapted and they've learned to live with the high humidities. But to say that that is their ideal is fairly ridiculous. So what I like to do is explain to people that there is a difference between an ideal humidity or 
a creature that does better with higher moisture levels. And we're going to differentiate between the two. With humidity, you're talking about the water in the air. I have a humidity gauge, full disclosure, in my tarantula room that just kind of gives me a ballpark figure. I don't take it as set in stone. I don't go by any of these. This species requires 65% humidity or even 95% humidity. I find that rather ridiculous and a waste of time and in some cases dangerous because folks that are trying to keep humidity up in cages do some things to end up with stuffy cages. However, what I use it for is to give me a ballpark. So when the furnace is running in the wintertime and that humidity gauge says it's in the single digits, that's something I have to pay attention to because there aren't many tarantulas out there, I think, that do particularly well with 0% humidity. You want some moisture in there. And when it says the humidity is high, I keep an eye out on some of my species that don't particularly particularly like humidity, like my G. porteri. She'll start climbing the cages because it makes her uncomfortable. What I shoot for is something around 30, 45, 40% humidity in the room. That's where I know it's at a comfortable level when my water dishes aren't evaporating super fast. So when we talk about humidity, what we really want to start talking about is the moisture dependent species, the ones that do well with not worrying about humidity, but with moist substrate. That becomes very important. And that's how we regulate the moisture levels with tarantulas. We don't put humidity gauges in Side their pens. A lot of the slings and stuff are kept in very small enclosures that you couldn't fit one in anyway. Nor is it really necessary for the big ones. You can monitor the room and control the humidity inside by moistening substrate or by my favorite, including water dishes. That's a big one. So when talking about humidity, what you want to look at is, is the species coming from a place that requires a bit more moisture? Is it a humid environment? If so, you moisten the substrate. For some species, like Theraphosis sturmi, you want to make sure that you keep the substrate moist most of the time. You don't have to keep the whole thing completely moist. I usually do part of it, nor should it be soaking wet. You want substrate that is moist enough so that if you were to pick up a handful of it and squeeze it, it would hold its shape, but water isn't going to dribble out, and that's key. You don't want a fetid enclosure with a bunch of, you know, stagnant water. One of the books, uh, Tarantula Keeper's Guide, mentions the swamp dwellers and that part of the book i mean it's a fantastic book but that's one of the parts of the book that people read and freak out about they read oh my god this is a swamp dweller they start closing off the ventilation they start pouring water in and what you end up with is a bacteria that is just a petri dish i mean an enclosure that's just a petri dish for bacteria that's a problem so what you want to do is moisten part of the substrate you want to keep a water dish in. For a species like Theraphosis sturmi, I would honestly not have a problem with putting in two water dishes, two or one large water dish. They will not drown. We will get into that in a future one because the water dish thing still drives me nuts. But a larger water dish or two, I used to have a male, and I would moisten part of the substrate, and I had two water dishes, one on each side, and kept them full. He did perfectly fine. Molted two times in my care as an adult, matured out, no issues whatsoever. So when thinking of humidity, stop measuring what it's, what's in the air, stop trying to put things inside the enclosures, and just monitor what is your house like. Is it moist in the summer? If so, don't worry about it. If it's already 90 degrees in your house, they're humid enough. And I speak to folks from the Philippines a lot. I have a lot of great people over there I correspond with via comments or Facebook. And a lot of times I have to explain, don't worry about moistening down the substrate. You guys already have a tropical environment. You're fine. If you're in New England in the middle of the summer and it's 90% humidity, then let the substrate dry out. There's no issue there. Keep the water dish full. You're fine. If it's the wintertime and your furnace is running and the air is dry, you can literally carve your name into your arm with your fingernail because your skin's so flaky. 
gross, I know, but it happens, then what you want to do is keep those water dishes full and moisten down part of the substrate. Now, a question is how often? Well, how often do you need it? I like to look in the side of the container. A lot of times what happens is you want the water to percolate down to the bottom layers so the bottom stays completely moist while the top layers can dry out a bit. That's not a problem. If you have a clear container, you can usually tell the dirt on the bottom is more moist and wet and the dirt on the top can be drier. When you start seeing that line going down and there's less and less moist substrate on the bottom layers, then it's time to add some water. I like to do it with a water bottle that I've poked several holes in so I can basically, say, make it rain, which makes everybody giggle because it doesn't sound right, but you make it rain, you make it pour, and you can aim that at the sides of the enclosure and let it trickle down between the side of the enclosure and the dirt so that it soaks down into the lower levels. That keeps the top dry, it doesn't become moldy, it doesn't fester, the tarantula can stay dry, but it allows those moisture levels, if the tarantula wants the burrow to reach them, he or she can. Or if she just wants to sit on top, as that water evaporates, it will naturally raise the moisture level levels in the air inside those enclosures. And with humidity, it's also important to mention you want ventilation. This isn't something where you want to block everything off to trap it in, but you also want to avoid ventilation on the top of the enclosures. For the most part, when they're ventilated on top, the water evaporates much, much more quickly. I did some experiments years ago in which I tried to cover up the top of the enclosure and do ventilation on the side and then the other one I left the top open and the ones with the open tops the water dishes evaporate much faster what you want is holes in the side I try to put them in all four with the majority in two sides so you get cross ventilation a nice breeze going through that keeps them from becoming too stuffy and that's very very important even with the moisture dependent species in fact I'd say even more important with the moisture dependent species that you keep that cross ventilation going through that you don't block off the vents you don't keep them less ventilated you want them more ventilated so the air can go through you can always add more water that's not a problem and again with the tarantula keepers guide that's another thing where he starts talking about covering up vents and everything else i don't like to do that at all i think if you're covering up all the vents you that's a recipe for disaster that's going to be a very toxic environment potentially for your spider And I think that one of the reasons we obsess with humidity is a lot of us enter this hobby from keeping snakes and reptiles where it is more important to maintain and monitor your humidity inside of enclosures. I know I came from keeping snakes, and so when I read that they had certain humidity requirements, I was really obsessive about those. But I'm lucky I didn't kill some spiders doing it because I was trying to add water, and then I would add too much water, and I was cutting down ventilation. That's not how you do it. We need to leave that behind. That's a different hobby, and although, and again, I can talk about this in the future too, although I think that the reptile hobby or keeping any type of exotics does help you prepare for tarantulas and some of the things you might encounter, that's one of the spots where it leads us astray. We look at humidity, we look at these care sheets, and we go, oh dear, it's got to be 95%, and before you know it, we have a dead spider. So something to keep in mind, and I'm going to say this repeatedly, when you're looking up information online, ignore the humidity requirements. If you see something that says it needs 95% humidity, that's BS. That's a made-up number. If you see something that says it needs 68% humidity, again, ridiculous, made-up number. But... If you see something that says it's moisture dependent, that's something to pay attention to. And there's a list of species, Velocipes, L or O Velocipes, the H. gigas are another one, um, T. sturmi, T. blondi, T. apophysis. These are all species that are going to need a little extra attention as far as humidity is concerned. That's by all means not all of them. I'm just not going to spend the whole time r- rattling them off. So again, 
abandon the idea of humidity, worry about moisture dependent species. And if they're moisture dependent, work with water dishes, moist substrate, and good ventilation. That is the key. And finally, to round this one off, my third topic today is shipping in the wintertime. And this one's pretty important to me because I think sometimes in the hobby, we forget that we're dealing with living animals. We're used to the instant gratification of companies like Amazon, where if you have the two-day shipping, you, you order it, it's sent the next day, it's in your hands, you're playing with your item or whatever, or using it. And I think it's important to keep in mind that with tarantulas, although we can usually get them next day, sometimes the weather is not the type of weather we need to ship animals. Now, most good dealers will hold packages during this time of the year and will refuse to ship if they see the weather's too cold, but they do ship out a lot of stuff and sometimes mistakes are made. So that's why I think it's important for keepers to be very well aware of not only the temperatures where they're at, but the temperatures of where the item is coming from, and to exercise caution and patience whenever ordering. This time of the year, weather can turn on the drop of a dime. We just had weather the other day that was 55 degrees. Two days later, it was three. So keep that in mind when you're shipping, that you're shipping a live animal that can and will freeze to death. Now, well-packed boxes can withstand some really cold, cold temperatures. Um, I once received a package from Jamie's, uh, Jamie's Tarantulas that took a long time to come in. It, it got lost for a day. And when it finally arrived, I was really worried because the temperature had dropped to five degrees, but they, everybody was all right. It was, they were safe and sound. However, don't take the chance. And I think if you're getting into this hobby with Tarantulas, it is a hobby that absolutely demands patience. You're looking at mulch. You're looking at some animals that take forever to grow. You, you're looking at animals that will bury, bury themselves and not come out of their dens. You have to exercise patience. And I think that when you're ordering a new species or a new spider and you're all excited about it, I get that. I'm one of the worst people in the world. I've paid extra shipping to get something here early because I can't wait to have it. I get it. I really do. But with my spiders, I don't play around. If I think we're going to have a stretch where it's 30 degrees, I'll ask them to hold that most places are, that I've dealt with have been absolutely fantastic with it. Good dealers, uh, Tanya at Fear Not Tarantulas, I know not only looks at the weather at where you live, but she's looking at her weather and she's also looking at the weather at the FedEx hub that your package is going to go to. Because a lot of people don't realize that although you may be able to think that the package travels in a straight line from, say... Texas to your home, there could be a stop somewhere that you're not anticipating where it's extra cold. So you need to look at stuff like that. So good dealers, good vendors will keep track of that. However, some people are new to this business. Some people haven't quite learned the art of shipping during the winter and the fact that sometimes you have to worry about, for lack of a better term, pissing off some of your customers by telling them, hey, I'm not shipping this right away. And that's not a good thing. I had somebody once all excited because they tried to order from Netbug and she said she was going to hold on to it because it was too cold and she's in the same state as me where it gets quite cold in the winter. And he canceled the order and had another company ship to him. And he was all excited because he's like, she's not holding on to my money. I ordered this thing. I want it. Well, he ended up with a dead spider. And it, it was a difficult conversation. It was an email conversation I had because I kind of had to say, this is ridiculous. You don't belong in this hobby if you can't exercise patience. Now, again, I'm not preaching to people, but I implore you, if you're ordering this time of the year and you live in one of the places, one of the states with colder climates, or you live in a country, I know I was talking to somebody from Scotland right now where they're getting snow there, 
hold off. Just wait. The majority, if they're a good dealer, I can honestly say if they're a good dealer or a good vendor, they're not going to think twice. They're going to thank you for having you hold. They don't want to ship dead bugs. That's the last thing they want because that turns very messy for them. So from a business standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. So you're looking for somebody that's reputable. If you say to them, hey, do me a favor. I really want to buy these. You pay for your order. You pay for shipping. But go, I'm going to tell you when I want to ship it. They should be 100% okay with that. There shouldn't be any issue. And if you ask them, hey, can you hold this for me? I'm going to pay for it in advance. And they tell you, oh, no, we're going to ship it out. Take your business elsewhere. Seriously, it's a great way to figure out who's good and who's not. So you will start to, as you order more and more, see who does the great packing jobs. And there's always going to be accidents. I had one ordered one week where it was supposed to be 45, 50 degrees, which should have been great. Well, we had a a snap thunder uh, snowstorm come in. The temperature plummeted one of those days, and there was nothing anybody could do about it. The package was already in the mail. Luckily, it was packed well. There was a heat pack inside. Everybody was okay. But something you want to think about this time of the year, try to exercise caution and patience. Again, you're going to need it in this hobby. Trust me. And I think people that have been in it for a while are probably shaking their heads. Oh, God, yeah. You need to have patience in this hobby and make sure that you hold on to it until the weather permits and give yourself a good three or four days. Assume the package is going to get lost. I know FedEx is usually good with next day. You're paying a ridiculous amount of money for it, but there are always issues that can pop up where something gets lost or the package is delayed. You don't want that happening on one of those cold days. So plan on the fact that it could get lost and give yourself an extra couple days. All right, that should do it for now. Can't believe I managed to talk for almost a half hour. Again, really enjoying this. Hope people respond well to it because I think that I can probably do some things that I can't really do with the videos and the blogs. It'll allow me to kind of open up a little more. And again, I'm really looking forward to doing some interviews or possibly teaming up with some other keepers to talk about some of the topics in the hobby because let's call a spade a spade. Most people look at us like we're weird, so there's not going to be a lot out there as far as discussions over arachnids and other inverts. So that'll do it for now. If you enjoyed this and haven't found my website, please check out tomsbigspiders.com. A lot of instructional um, essays and husbandry notes and things of that nature on the website. And check out my channel on YouTube. It's usually found under by searching Tom Moran. So thanks for listening. Have a good night.